0: This lesson was originally preached at First Naz on June 28, 2015, but due to a recording error, the original recording was lost, so I'm preaching the message again today, but without the benefit of a congregation to help me along the way. I hope this message will be an encouragement to you in your faith. Every morning I wake up and think to myself, don't get dead today, Cliff. Actually, it's pretty high on my list of priorities. As it turns out, there are a lot of things that could get in the way of that. Turns out that there are a number of things in my home that I thought were only helpful, but in fact, could be lethal. For instance, take a look at the screen. Look at this can of Febreze. Everybody has Febreze in their house, right? It's been hot and really uncomfortable around here. This one has a snowflake on the can, makes me feel better just looking at it. But if you turn it around and look at the warning label on the back, it turns out that Febreze may be lethal. I am raising two boys, as you and my congregation know, and that means that there's a BB gun and this package of BBs that's pictured on the screen. It's a love story, really, right? A boy and his BB gun? Well, you turn the package around and look at the warning on the back, it turns out that BBs may be lethal. How about the hands of everyone here who has a can of WD-40 in their house or in their garage, right? Laura uses it in our home. She keeps it in the laundry room because she uses it on stains on clothes. That's right, folks. You're not just getting a sermon today. It's helpful household hints as well. But if you turn it around, look on the back, there's a warning. WD-40 may be lethal. What if there were some things that could be lethal to your faith? What if a person could believe what the Bible teaches about Jesus and salvation, and yet there were still things that could separate them from God for eternity? If that were really the case, would you want to know it? In May, we started studying the New Testament book titled 1 Corinthians. We've made our way to chapter 6, so this week I've been studying it. It hasn't been easy, and for two reasons. The first is that it teaches some things that our nation does not want to hear and simply will not tolerate us saying any longer. The second is that it teaches something that Christians don't want to hear and might not tolerate. But whatever promises I've made to God in my life and whatever promises I made to you all when I first became your pastor, one of the most important is that I promised to teach what the Bible says and what it means with the help of God, I aim to do that today. Understand that as I do, you may be put in a place or two in which you have to choose between believing and living as an American or as a Christian. Those two things are not identical. This morning we'll read the first 11 verses of chapter 6. If you have Bibles or phones, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If not, you can follow along on the screen. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation of the Bible. Before we read, however, I need to warn you, this passage will challenge your American sense of justice. It might put you in a position where you'll have to decide whether you would rather act like an American or like a Christian the next time you're involved in a significant dispute. Because, as described in this text... Those two things, again, are not identical. Hear the word of the Lord. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? how much more the things of this life. Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there's nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers, but instead one brother takes another to court and this in front of unbelievers? The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This chapter, which continues for another nine verses beyond what I just read, is loaded with issues that are relevant to life in our world today. In it, Paul teaches principles that address the issues of conflict resolution, trust in the justice of God, sexuality, greed, habits that become bondage, and the use of alcohol in particular, honorable speech, and fair business practices. That's a lot of issues that are relevant to our lives. I could spend two months of Sundays teaching about those things in detail. I won't, but because I believe that the people of God who call themselves followers of Jesus have become unfaithful and disobedient in these matters, I'm going to address some of them briefly today and next week. But in so doing, I don't want to lose sight of what I believe is the one principle that Paul was really trying to teach. So when I wrap this lesson up, we'll focus on that one thing, okay? And I'll just give you a little preview. Here's the principle. You have been changed. Live like it so that others will want to join us in this life-changing relationship with God. Now, first, let's just get rid of the distractions. I know you notice them. At the beginning of the passage, Paul wrote two things about judgment. First, he wrote that we Christians will one day judge the world, and then that we will judge angels. Now, How exactly is that going to work? The truth is, I don't know. There's just not enough other reference to these ideas in the rest of the Bible for me to say that I know exactly what Paul is talking about here, so I just have to humble myself and admit that your pastor doesn't know what this part of the Bible really means, except that we will one day be involved in judging the rest of the world and angels, as it says. All I can say is that I think that I'd better not look forward to judging too much, or I've probably missed the gospel principle of grace by a mile. So there are the two big distractions in the passage. Sorry, I can't help you much with them, but let's move on to the issues most relevant to living as followers of Jesus in today's world. Paul tackles some issues head on, and he goes so far as to say that these things are completely out of place in our lives, and so much so that if these things truly characterize the way we live, if we harbor these practices, if we make room for them in our lives and make excuses for why they're okay, we will not inherit kingdom of God. Now, because I am who I am at the personality level, I'd like to soften that blow a bit, but I can't because it's written plainly in this passage. In other words, these things must be removed from the lives of the followers of Jesus. Let's look at the list, which begins in verse 9. All these things fit under the general umbrella of wrongdoing, Paul wrote. So, So feel that Doing these things is wrong. The first thing that he mentions is insisting on justice and taking revenge. And while the word revenge doesn't appear in today's passage, the idea certainly does. Paul started the chapter by talking at some length about Christians who get so embroiled in conflict that they lose sight of their brotherhood or sisterhood. They're so concerned with them getting their share or in getting justice when they've been wronged that they forget how important our relationships are. The Corinthians had forgotten how important their brothers and sisters are supposed to be, so they're dragging each other into the public courts to make sure they got justice. Well, that seems fair, right, to an American? Paul said that among the Jesus people, there are a couple of better ways than mere justice. One is to make sure that you don't make Jesus look like an angry, selfishly interested person by suing your Christian brother or sister. Instead, find a Christian that you both trust and ask them to settle the issue for you. Commit to peace in the body of Christ and to making sure you don't personally dishonor Jesus and his church in front of people who don't share our faith. Paul also taught that there's an even better way than that. He wrote, Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? In other words, don't strike back. In the kingdom of God, we do things differently. This empire doesn't strike back because we trust that God himself will eventually balance the scales of justice or he'll help us to be so thankful for the times we personally were forgiven instead of being held to justice that we offer the same thing to one another. Listen, Americans, we're justice mongers, but sometimes there's something even better than getting justice. It's giving grace and forgiveness, just as our God has done to us. Next, Paul talks about sexual immorality, and he he talks about it in general and of two very specific kinds. Whenever consulted together, the books of the Old and New Testaments of the Bible, which were written by about 40 different authors, over the course of about 1,500 years, they develop a code of sexual conduct to be practiced by the people of God. The baseline or foundational principle upon which biblical sexual ethics rest is this. Sexual activity is to be practiced only within the bonds of a covenant marriage between a man and a woman. And any deviation from this principle is referred to in scripture as sexual immorality. And Paul wrote that the continued willful practice of sexual immorality will damn us. He also mentions two particular sins under the larger umbrella of sexual immorality, and he mentions them in this text because they were a real issue in Corinth. Adultery and homosexuality. These issues are of enormous impact on any society because they erode the safety, security, and sanctity of the basic unit of society as designed by God. And that unit is the family. Let's learn some biblical definitions so we can understand what's being taught by Paul in this passage. The two most basic categories of sexual immorality as defined by the Bible are fornication and adultery. Fornication refers to sexual acts by unmarried persons. And while this passage doesn't refer to fornication, it is forbidden elsewhere in the New Testament. Single Christians, God calls you to self-control he also promises to help you with that. Really. Adultery is a married person having sex with someone other than their spouse, and this passage clearly forbids it. Adultery will damage or destroy your marriage, and that will cost you and your kids for a lifetime, your family for a couple of generations. Forget what supermarket and online magazines say about carefully controlled sexual experiments with outsiders to spice up and strengthen your marriage. That's poison. Adultery doesn't bring life to a marriage. It kills it. Inviting anyone else into the one plus one sexual equation of marriage is sin in God's eyes. This text also mentions a third category of sexual immorality, homosexuality. And to make sure that his readers got the point, Paul called it by two different words. I've sat with pastors and professors in recent days who've gone to great lengths to try to explain away the Bible's prohibition of homosexuality, but it cannot be done. This text is one of the several that make it very plain. This text uses, as I mentioned, two different words for homosexuality. And if you'll pardon the... um, crude technicalities. It refers to the partner who is passive and the partner who is active in homosexual acts. Our culture is angry that the scriptures forbid this, and it is actively attacking any who believe that homosexuality is sin. But as a pastor, I'm obligated to teach you what the Bible says and what it means And on this issue, the Bible is clear. God forbids the practice of homosexuality among his people. Remember that earlier in our study of 1 Corinthians, we are told not to judge those outside the faith by Christian standards, but that we are to hold one another accountable within the church to live as Jesus and the apostles taught us. They teach us that sex belongs within the protection of a covenant marriage between a man and a woman. Followers of Jesus, do you believe reject what God has taught us in his book. Understand that Paul taught that willful, knowing, sexual immorality of any kind can be forgiven if we repent and walk away from it. But if we defiantly continue to practice it, it will separate us from God for eternity. That goes for both gay and straight varieties. Next, Paul talks about worshiping other gods. All throughout the Bible, God makes it clear that he doesn't want to be number one on your list of favorite gods. In fact, he refuses to be any part of a list of gods. In order to have a relationship with the God of the Bible, you must have an exclusive relationship with him. Most people here today couldn't even name another god, let alone would you bow down to one or carve time out of your busy schedule to attend a church service dedicated to its worship. Our culture is changing, though, and especially our youth and children will be presented with opportunities in the not-too-far-distant future to bring another God on board, to make room for him or her in their lives. It will be presented to them as just being open-minded or tolerant. It might be presented as just another name for our God. Christians, young and old, don't be fooled. Our God's name is Yahweh. And uh, because of the difference in Hebrew and English letters, you might pronounce it Jehovah, but he alone is God. His son, Jesus Christ, is fully God as well. The father and son, pardon me, sent the Holy Spirit, also a person, to help us to live in complete dedication to our God. Paul told the Corinthians and us that worshiping other gods, it's called idolatry, will separate us from God forever. Next, Paul talks about dishonesty. Theft, greed, dishonest business practices, slander, they all kind of fit in the same category. He uses a number of different words to help us to understand that God's people must get rid of theft, greed, unfair business practices, and damaging the reputation of others by lying about them. That's what the word slander means. All these things have one thing in common, dishonesty. Theft is fueled by greed, so is swindling others in business deals. Greed isn't just any desire for more. It's a desire for more that is so deep that we're willing to use illegitimate means to get it. Dishonesty lies at its root then. And once again, Paul teaches that continuing to practice these things will cost us a place in God's kingdom. Next, he talks about drunkenness, and in the interest of time, I'm not going to say much about drunkenness and the use of alcohol today. Next week, I'll teach from the second half of the chapter, which I think helps us understand it better. For today, suffice it to say that Paul is blunt. Drunkenness is not part of God's plan for you. If it's a part of your life, you're going to have to choose between it and God eventually, because drunkenness, he said, will exclude you from the kingdom. Before I conclude this lesson, however, it's important to note that Paul called his first readers to remember, when reading that big long list of sins and sinners, that it's a list of the things that they used to be. Instead of being harsh judges who shake our bony, accusing fingers at the world, he called us to be compassionate and grateful. Grateful for what? Grateful that we've been washed, that we've been set apart for God's purposes only. That's what the word sanctified means. And that we've been put into right standing before God. That's what the word justified means. I mentioned earlier that I believe that in this passage, Paul was trying to teach one important principle to the followers of Jesus. And perhaps it's the message of the entire letter that we call 1 Corinthians. He said, you've been changed, so live like it. That way, others will want to join us in this life-changing relationship with God. First Naz family, we have to get a hold of this. Christianity is not diplomatic immunity. Diplomatic immunity excuses from punishment certain people who purposely have done wrong, but think their position should allow them the freedom to do so. Christianity is not about getting by with doing wrong and calling it grace. It's about being forgiven and changed from the heart outward by a loving, healthy relationship with God. Christianity isn't a free pass to do things that are offensive to God. Neither is it keeping a bunch of rules made up by a control freak of a God. Christian faith is a real relationship with the one true God, and it changes me so much that I am set free from things that hurt and destroy myself and others. Things like unresolved or forcefully resolved conflict, things like sexual immorality, idolatry, dishonesty of all kinds, and drunkenness. When other people see this kind of change in us, it sometimes creates an interest in them because they too hope to change. Sometimes that hope for change reveals to them a loneliness that their hearts have always known, a desire to come to know God for the first time in their lives or for the real time in their lives. This is the design of God. You and I are essential parts of that plan. Christians, if we think we are forgiven but can remain completely unchanged, we need to look at our hearts and to remember that God's not a chump. He will not be mocked. We can't say to him, "Uh, I'll take a full order of forgiveness, but I'll also be keeping all of my sin. Now, leave me alone unless I want something. And I'll see you at death with my haha, I fooled you, and get-out-of-jail-free card. Yeah, God's not playing that. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Do you see something in your life that needs to change? Has the Holy Spirit pointed out something to you today? Do you sense a burning in your heart, a, a desire to have a, a healthy, holy relationship with God and to be a changed man or a changed woman? Psalm 37.4 says, take delight in God, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. It means that God forgives and changes every person who genuinely desires forgiveness and change. Did you hear that? God forgives and changes every person who genuinely wants those things, and he forgives and changes no one who doesn't want those things. You get the desires of your heart. If you want to be washed, if you want to be set apart for God's purposes only, if you want to be put into right standing with God, you need only to ask him and he'll do it. He'll also leave you alone and leave you just as you are, if you'd prefer that. But God is a good God. So if there's something in our lives that's damaging to us, damaging to others, damaging to our relationship with him, He always finds a way to point it out. If you can tell that God's pointing out a need for change in you today, and you want to say yes to him, and to ask for his help in becoming the new person from the inside out, why don't you just have a conversation with him about that? Ask him to do it, and his answer is always yes.